When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi, this is Simon Kelly, co-author of Valueology, aligning sales and marketing to shape and deliver profitable customer value propositions. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Also, if you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery at the moment, Please hop on Twitter and tell me where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is Marketing Book. Today, we welcome Simon Kelly to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Paul Johnston and Stacey Danheiser, Valueology, Aligning Sales and Marketing to Shape and Deliver Profitable Customer Value Propositions. Simon Kelly has 35 years experience in customer service, sales, and marketing. At British Telecom, he pioneered the move from product push to value-based selling and marketing. He is a pracademic, which is someone who is both an academic and an active practitioner in their subject area. And I wish I had more professors like that when I was in business school. He has developed innovative marketing and sales skills modules for Sheffield Business School, where he is a senior lecturer. And he is the co-founder of Shake Marketing Group based in London. And interesting fact, he is a big Colorado Rockies U.S. Major League Baseball fan. Simon, congratulations on Valueology and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, why, thank you, Douglas. Uh, it's good to be here with you. So just briefly tell the listener why you're a big Colorado Rockies fan living in the U.K. as you are. Well, I uh, lived in Denver for a couple of years, 2010 to mid-2012. I went back into sort of working in uh, mainstream corporate life. I was running North American marketing for Level 3 Communications, which is where I met my co-author, Stacey Danheiser. I was living downtown in Denver, just a short hop from the ball ground. And when there's 162 games in the calendar year and you get weather like you do in Denver, then you can't help but get down there. And I absolutely loved it. 
Yeah, that's now, it's terrific. It's a big miss for me now. I'm back in this country. So. Well, I, you're, you can probably watch it online somehow or mm-hmm. something like that. But for the listeners in Colorado, if you have some you know, Colorado Rocky swag, please send it Simon's way because he, he misses you. Did you ever go to any Broncos games? Well, no, because as you know, the difference between baseball uh, and football is the, the number of games. So there was only ever eight home games and it was like, way too expensive to get there (laughs) that's true that's true i I did follow the broncos when i was there and i still do and of course we were we had the world championship taken off last year and hopefully we'll be back stronger this year yeah yeah well that's terrific i just have to say as a marketing book geek and you know when when i I read the books i see who writes the forwards and i always get excited sort of like somebody who's a big movie fan who just can't get Mm -hmm. enough of watching the academy awards and the forward to your book was written by Malcolm McDonald, who has been on the Marketing Book Podcast, one of the best interviews we had. So I guess to use a Jerry Maguire expression, Simon, you had me at Malcolm McDonald. Oh, good, good. Okay, well, I look forward to listening to his podcast. And uh, if I can come up with anything that approaches the standard that he does, then I'll I'll be lucky. But um, no, I, our paths crossed when I was leading marketing for major business at BT. It has been very helpful uh, helping us with, with this book and giving feedback and stuff. So yeah, great guy. Yeah, super. Well, let me start with just reading one excerpt from the book to set the stage. And actually, it's from the very end of the book, but Anyway, I wanted to grab the listener by the lapels and get them to pay attention. Here it goes. Organizations that are failing to understand customer value are failing to get their attention. In fact, 94% of them have disengaged with organizations like yours because you've been sending them irrelevant rubbish. If you're doing this, you're wasting 94% of the money you're spending on content and losing customers by the day. Cohesion is the new differentiator cohesive advantage is the new competitive advantage. If you can get your marketing and sales teams aligned to customers and what they value, you'll be ahead of the pack. If you can connect the dots for customers to demonstrate that you understand their issues and deliver value for them, you become one of the 6% of organizations whose content doesn't get consigned to the electronic waste bin. If you don't do this now, you'll continue to be noise to the customer and will whimper to an untimely death that nobody will hear. So, Simon, tell us why you and your co-authors wrote this book. Wow, it sounds as though it's right there. Yeah, really precisely for those reasons. I mean, if you trace back the sort of history of value propositions, if you want to call it that, really started about 57, credited a couple of McKinsey consultants, Bauer and Garder. So, you know, it's not um, ancient phenomenon, but it reasonably um, old, if you want to call it that now, 70 years old-ish. But despite the fact that they've been around that length of time, it's pretty clear from lots and lots of studies over the last 10 years, uh, you repeatedly see that organizations aren't tapping into customer value. And, and then when customers are asked what it is that they want to see from organizations, they're saying, you know, you need to understand what it is that makes us tick, what it is that we're looking to get from you and, and not talk to us about the widget that you sell all the time, you know. And, you know, we point out right at the beginning that if you look at the Fortune 500 list and compare it to the year 2000, then 52% of the organizations that were on in 2000 are no longer on. And you know, one of the biggest contributors to us to be the fact that organizations aren't doing this. 
And so we wrote it in response to that, uh, recognizing that what we don't think we've seen in, in any other books is, is something that tries to, from soup to nuts, help people or practitioners in marketing and sales develop an approach, a holistic approach, which takes into account both the sales and the, and the marketing uh, piece because it has to be intertwined now. So one of the things you mentioned in the book is one of the most famous articles from the Harvard Business Review from 1960. I mean, I think that's one of the most famous ones because I keep seeing it come up and again and again. And it was an article called Marketing Myopia from Ted Levitt. And can you explain for the listener the premise of that article? And of course, it's so relevant even now and how that's related to value and, and value propositions. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love that article, too. And it's something I use a lot uh, in business engagements and in my university life. I mean, the article marketing myopia is essentially saying that you're myopic if you think that it, it is the thing that you sell that the customer's interested in. It, it It's not what it is. It's what it does. And, you know, the, the fantastic example is, OK, well, the American railroad owners had trains full of people one day and then the next day they're rocked up and they just saw tumbleweed blowing through the railway stations and looked up at the sky to see that short haul flights were using their railroads for navigation and therefore building on that, Levitt says, well, that's because you need to understand that you're in the business of transportation, uh, you're not running railroads and if you had that lens, then you'd actually scan and look at the world in a different way, yeah? Like what value you're providing. So they thought they were in the railroad business. They didn't understand yes. that they were in the business of getting people and things from point A to point B. Yeah, if, if I was saying to Ted Levitt, if he was still around, or oh, Ted, can I help you with a, a sort of update to that article, that the example I always use, which I really love because I picked this up when I was at MIT in Boston, uh, was uh, about Boston Ice Company. And as you probably know, in Boston, there are lots of ice houses. Uh, and back in the day, ice used to be drawn from Boston Bay and insulated in ice houses and then sent around the world. Now, of course, Boston Ice Company doesn't exist. And, and when you ask people why, people sometimes say, oh, is the global warming and does Boston Bay never freeze over? Those people have clearly never been to Boston, yeah? <laughs> but of course... You know, that place to Levitt's point, they don't exist anymore because they didn't understand that they were there to help people's food last longer. That's right. Yeah, and so refrigeration came along. So, yeah, it's all about customer value, understanding the value you're providing. And, and that article really set the whole marketing train off in that direction. But, you know, as, as I said, unfortunately, it's something that doesn't appear to be being widely practiced by organizations. Yeah, that's, Still. it's just as relevant now. And you say in the book that value may be one of the most overused and misused terms in marketing yeah. and pricing. So explain a little bit more about what is value. Well, I think, you know, what's different about this book than perhaps some others, uh, maybe because both Paul Johnston and I are pre-academics. I mean, Paul was originally the sales and marketing director at a gaming company before he followed a similar path to me, is that the first two chapters spend a little bit of time saying, you know, this is not sort of as straightforward as it may sound. As a word, it means too many things to too many different people. And so we spend some time trying to say the definition's not clear-cut. Now, 
the one that most people seem to settle on is the sort of Kotler type definition, which is, okay, it's the difference between what you perceive the benefits you're going to get uh, from something, take away the the cost or, or the total cost of ownership, as it's called, which is how, how much would it cost to run that thing over its lifetime. But of course, you know, even that in itself is not straightforward because what benefits are you looking to get? I mean, is it a relational benefit because you want a bunch of people working on a project from your vendor who you like and you know can add value? Uh, is it some kind of emotional benefit because you want the peace of mind to know that if you fall asleep at night, your service is going to operate, that type of thing, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, so what we're saying is that you need to address this question as an organization because you can bet that if two people are using the word value or value proposition in the same room in an organization, that they probably mean different things. And you need to settle on what that is for your organization, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's a, um, it seems like it's a simple concept, but it's extremely complicated. It's, uh, it reminded me of if somebody starts talking about a brand. There's many mm-hmm. different definitions of, of that and, and, and how you influence it. So let's say one of the listeners goes into work tomorrow and the boss says, hey, what is our value proposition? What, I think we should explain what what is a value proposition. Right. Okay. Well, again, you know, means different things to different people. And and after some discussion in the book, what we sort of land on is that it's about it's a promise about future relevant, distinct benefits that you could deliver to a customer or a set of customers. So it's all about the customer and the customer benefit, and it is about the sort of relevancy and the fact that. Uh, the value is actually delivered and consumed once the customer takes it away, yeah? So we're saying a value proposition can only be a promise. And one of the things that we point to in the book is that, you know, organizations need to get better once they've sold something to a customer, actually going back and checking if the promised value has been delivered, yeah? Mm -hmm. Because if I sell you an umbrella, then unless I know that, you've been kept dry if that's what you were looking to get from the umbrella then i won't know if the uh, value you were looking for has been delivered if that makes sense yeah in terms of trying to unearth customer value in the in the beginning of a process what are some of the things that should be done perhaps some of the things that are are not being done correctly but just in broad strokes i know that's not fair <laughs> after you've written the whole book about it but no what- no i mean i mean in broad strokes that is fair because i, I think again what we're saying maybe not explicitly in the book that it, uh, you know lots of organizations do a lot of sort of uh, if you like classic numeric type research and so we've got lots of stuff that some of these great organizations have come up with which says things like 16 percent of c-level buyers um, don't own buy on product benefit only 16 percent now now that's okay but what we're saying is you actually need a, a much better qualitative understanding of what's driving customers thinking and behavior so when we talk about unearthing customer value, we think much more time should be spent you know, in looking at more in-depth customer type interviews or day in the lives or, or whatever to really try to unearth what value a customer is looking for, you know, not just sort of... Uh, you know, those email surveys that, that, that we all receive and answer, yeah? So, That's right. 
I think colleges would call it a, a, a drop, adopting a mixed methods approach. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, one of the things that was clear to me in the book, and maybe it's because I'm very sensitive to it, is that companies don't know as much about their customers as they might think they do. And there seems to be a reluctance to just want to go talk to them. Or even just go talk to the salespeople as a start. It seems like you've you've run into an issue with that as well, just in terms of unearthing insights by talking to customers. Yeah, I'm absolutely um, staggered by by that. I mean, uh, when we've been engaged with with organizations to try and help them with this stuff, quite often, remarkably, they'll say, okay, is is there any way we can skip the research bit and you can help us frame a value proposition? That's... uh, scary yeah yeah and then it's called ready fire aim yeah exactly yeah and then more worryingly and and i'm a big advocate because my background's business to business and this book primarily concerns itself with business to business of uh, using sales as a proxy for understanding customers issues because we all know that in 95 percent of organizations probably even uh, more than that the sales guy visits more customers than the marketing person. And there needs to be a more open dialogue between sales and marketing, which tries to use sales as a proxy for customers, but not as always an absolute substitute. So, you know, make sure you're building good quality customer research, good quality dialogue, but make sure there's a regular flow between sales and marketing, which helps you sort of think about whether you're going to market with the right messaging or differentiating yourself in a way that's meaningful to the customer, yeah? Absolutely. And I, I see it even in, in my world. We're in the agency business and we'll go work with a new client and we'll start with a like a workshop and we spend time with the salespeople and we extract a lot of insights from them, information about the customer. But then we go and do the interviews with actual customers and it's a Venn diagram. It's not concentric circles. In other words, the <laughs> insights from the customers, there is some overlap with what we're hearing from the sales team. But it, it, it's just amazing at how much more information we get just even by doing four interviews, buyer persona mm. interviews with customers. I, it, it just yeah. still amazes me. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess that can be for a whole heap of reasons. I mean, when you're in the heat of the battle and your prime responsibility is to try and get somebody to sign for something, then maybe uh, the skill set's not as well developed as maybe it should be that essential part what i view as an essential part of the sales role but maybe some organizations don't which is that whole sort of piece of uh, being responsible for bringing back new and insightful customer feedback um, and and then as marketeers to be able to make sense uh, of what's coming back and spot any trends and, and react to it um you know, as I say, triangulated with uh, some interviews, some depth interviews with a customer or customers, yeah? Yeah, triangulate. That's that's a good term because then we'll overlay that with some other things like maybe some SEO research just to see what the language is that people are actually searching for. And, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very revealing. It's very satisfying to help point these folks in the right direction. So let's talk about this theme-based approach to value propositions and explain what it is and how it can improve the success of your marketing and sales efforts. Right. Okay. Well, I'll start with a sort of background as to I, how I eventually landed on that, that. And then it was way back when I was sort of running business marketing in BT. And at that time, I think we probably had two or 3,000 products. And therefore, by definition, if you wanted to sort of talk about a different product to a customer, uh, then you'd have to talk to a customer about 10 products a day. You know? So, you know, we started to 
concern ourselves with, you know, what's a better way to do that? And the better way to do that from my perspective is to say, okay, let's at a sort of macro level understand the key issues that customers are being affected by. And so at the time we first did that in BT back in the day, we came up with a theme of agility, yeah, which is something a lot of organizations have glummed onto lately. We can help you be more agile. So if you take the standpoint of we can help you be more agile, then and you talk about that as a consistent theme and array of product messages underneath that, then it resonates with the customer much more. It's not creating a lot of noise about different products. Now, crucially, as we move forward to today's world, why that's more and more important and why Valueology has sort of absolutely been written at a real relevant time is that most of the sales process Lots of organizations are saying it's around 60%. The front 60% of the sales process is people interacting with what you would call marketing channels. So they're jumping on your website, looking for information. They're looking at third-party reviews and all that good stuff. Now, the disconnect that we see is while lots of good salespeople at the customer interface, talk to the customer about their specific issue. If the marketing machine is just talking about product, blah, 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 the whole time, then, you know, you've got competing noise there, which is why, as we say, 94% of the stuff that gets sent to customers these days get binned. So we're saying pick some themes that customers understand and affect customers' lives and actually array the whole approach to market around those themes. Yeah, and I think that, and you mentioned this several times in the books, so and you've already mentioned it in the interview here about, in this one study, only 16% of companies buy based on product features. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet that seems to be 90% of the content that's going out there. Yes. There's a bit of a differentiator there. And that's actually one of several things you mentioned in your book. You brought other research to it as well as, as well as your own. There were a lot of great things. And then you talked quite a bit about CEB and talked about Forney's group and, and, and several others. So it's very, it's a bit of a dog-eared book now, <laughs> but it's yeah, very, very helpful in, in, making our, in making our case and trying to teach, uh, help companies understand. Let's talk a bit about the content because you just talked about, you know, the, the bigger role that marketing is needing to, should be playing in the sales process before they buyer might even engage with the, 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 the seller. Can you talk a little bit about how companies should determine the different types of content they need to create in order to keep their buyers you know, moving along that, that journey? Right. Okay. Well, that's kind of like the sixty million dollar question, and and again, uh, trying you know, to provide some... a lot of value to the customer. And if they get sixty million dollars <laughs> worth, yeah. we're both doing pretty yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that this is why we think our book's a little bit unique in that. You know, we do we do go through the whole cycle, um, which is why the question's fair. And and one of the things that we're saying is that we observe that. Um, people aren't building content, if you want to call it that, or the opportunity to have customer dialogue in line with what a buying process is, is likely to be like. Yeah. yeah. And so there, sh- there should be a more effort and attention paid to what that looks like. So in the front end, I might be interested in, okay, I'm interested in this category, if you want to call it that. I, I want to buy something. So I want to go through an, an awareness phase. What's it all about? And then I kind of classically go through some type of comparison, and and then I go through um, some sort of selection process. And in the end, I, I buy, and then I get buyer's remorse. And um, 
just after I've got buyer's remorse, I start to consume the thing and, and I either get the value that was promised to me or, or I don't. And so, you know, the content needs to sort of have that cycle much more in mind than it appears to do at this moment in time. There seems to be too much, as you observed, the content that's getting pushed out is about, okay, this is my widget and this is maybe why my widget's better than somebody else's. He's not telling you anything about how the widget can impact on you and it's not then giving uh, making it easy for you to buy as you move through the process. Yes, you may have heard me laughing. I'm laughing to keep from crying because I see this done a lot. But also, one thing you said is it needs to be aligned with the way the customer's buying. And what I think a lot of companies may not understand is that is not necessarily the way you're selling. In other words, the customer journey is not necessarily your sales process. So I think that mm. folks are producing, even if they say, okay, well, we're going to try and align it with our sales process. Well, <laughs> that still may, that may be the way you want to sell, but it's not necessarily a way that the uh, customer wants to buy and, and make decisions. And I guess related to that, is that some of the ways that companies can start to realize what content they don't need or they should stop producing? Is, does it align with the way the customer wants to buy? Well, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, if by definition, 94% of the stuff's going in the electronic waste bin, then there seems to be an opportunity to, to save that 94%. And I, I think there's a piece of research, again, that we quote in the book that says that the, that wasted money amounts to about a trillion dollars a year. And I can't remember off the top of my head uh, who the source of that research was. That might have been four nays, but so there is an opportunity to save that. Um, because, you know, more is definitely not more, which appears to be the trap that we fall into. I mean, you know, what's driving this is, you know, the whole sort of internet and online world is absolutely fantastic. It gives marketers opportunities through all sorts of channels to to push out content. And, and so there seems to be a rush to fill all those communication channels with their content. And that's okay if it's relevant and insightful and lots of it appears not to be yeah so align to the uh, buying process as you rightly said don't think it's the same as your sales process and take the opportunity to think about how you could save some money on content that you could invest elsewhere yeah yeah and i've heard that phenomenon you're describing there of let's just get a lot of content out there as i think it was nick westergaard in his book get scrappy he talks about it's called check the box marketing it's mm -hmm. like, well, just get it out there. Or like, well, get on all the social media channels, <laughs> even if your prospective yeah. customers aren't even using them. It's just check the box. Are we everywhere? Are we doing everything in case the boss comes in and says, what's our B2B Snapchat strategy? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't think we talk about that particularly in the book, but I think, you know, in marketing, in business to business, certainly because you get some demanding sales folks ask, asking for some stuff, then quite often activity can be mistaken for progress. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes. It's activity, not results, I guess. So yeah. in the remaining time, let me ask you to talk a little bit about what's basically my favorite topic, which you, you all jokingly describe it as it's almost as hard as attaining world peace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's aligning sales and marketing. Can you just explain why it is so important now that marketing and sales align, but not just align with each other, align with the customer? Right. Well, you stole my thunder there, Douglas, because the main 
part of the discussion that we bring out is it's actually about aligning with a customer. Yeah, and that hit me like a board between the eyes. In other words, it's yeah. not just the alignment, it's alignment on the customer. Just to make yeah, it more difficult, Simon, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm pleased that it did because I, you see a lot of people writing on this topic who, who are a little bit fixated about the relationship in and of itself. And we've actually got a four-box model, model that says if, if, if both uh, sales and marketing are aligned but they're not aligned to customer value, then you're just on a sort of rapid path to, to destruction because, you know, you, 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 you're all moving forward in the right direction from your organizational standpoint, but not towards the customer. So I should interject that I loved that four box model. In that box you're describing, I had to laugh because you all call it the road to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I don't know if we've uh, if talking head management company have been, could be knocking on our door asking for some royalties there because the actual optimum box we were going to call Stairway to Heaven, but we thought that Led Zeppelin had have more heavyweight solicitors, so I think we called it the Highway to Heaven. Yeah, but, uh, yes, the Highway to Heaven. And I, of course, knowing that two of the authors were British, I saw Highway to Heaven and immediately started thinking Stairway to Heaven. But I, I heard yeah. they are touchy about their, their trademark yeah. material. I guess they are, but I. It's really quite amazing. I mean, as, as I mentioned these days, uh, you've got a few things happening. Um, you've got that 60% of the front end of the process is supposedly now being conducted with the marketing channels, as we've already said. And you've got this whole phenomenon that customers are tuning out. And as you rightly said, we use CEB research quite a lot. And you'll see that they've recently said that since the last recession, the number of buyers, people responsible for buying stuff for an organization has gone up. It, it used to be one, supposedly one decision maker. Now it's 5.4, but they're actually saying more recently when they've surveyed, it's actually 6.8 people. Yeah. So there's got to be alignment to that piece as well that says, okay, there, there's actually one more than one customer that we've actually got to satisfy. So there are potentially 6.8 value propositions or there's one value proposition that tries to sort of take on board the, the, the differing needs of those 6.8 people. So, you know, all the way through the process at the front end, there's got to be alignment because the marketing messages and content have got to create a platform for the salesperson to be able to talk about customer value. And then the killer stat out of all of this is that, you know, the Quavidian research says that 58% of deals end up in no deal because value's not been presented well, which is just staggering. That is eye-watering, I think, you know. It is, and it, I saw that, and I don't think I had seen that before. I marked it, and I just thought, because even yesterday I was explaining to somebody that, you know, the status quo is our biggest competitor, and I think it is for most companies. They're just, yeah, just not doing yeah. anything. No, and that's interesting. You can always bring it back to a rock band uh, and, you know, status quo, yeah? Make all that money that they have on three chords, and they're the guys that you're most likely to use, lose a deal to as well. So, Well, I have to admit, is that a British band? Yes. See, I, yeah. I, I'm going to have to look it up, and I know my teenage, college-age kids would be embarrassed that I don't know <laughs> who it is, but uh, I, yeah. I better get up to speed on that. So I'm sorry. I, no. I, I was referring to the expression rather than the band, but 
Oh, no, I know. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the ways that, that you have seen organizations, what are some of the things they're doing to try and get the sales and marketing better aligned? I think we, you know, the, in the book, there's many ex- explanations as to why it, it happens. It seems like a lot of it's human nature and, and, and organizational problems. But the ones that are starting to take steps in the right direction to profitably align, what are, what are some of the big things they're doing to do that? Well, I think that in itself is an interesting question because there, there is sort of like some baseline stuff, and we call it in our book the GRIPS model. Where I think there are two R's in GRIPS, but you know, get your goals aligned. That is pretty staggering. Again, when when you actually talk to marketers and salespeople, there's not uh, as good a goal alignment as as you would expect. So, good organisations recognise that and recognise that if you know you have a six percent click or open rate on 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 an email that means nothing if in the end you don't sell anything so there's got to be um goal alignment there's got to be role alignment as as we discussed you know the 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 sales guy has to have some responsibility of feeding back market-based information to uh, marketing and then you know the customer information piece you know there's got to be more forums created for uh discussing customer value because when we talk to organizations it's surprising that most of the time that sales and marketing do talk to each other talking to each other uh, about tactical things like when's the next event and all of that good stuff so i think organizations that are doing this well you know do put the customer front and center in terms of the customer value and what the value, what value they're looking for. Maybe like a Marriott hotel is always used as somebody who's, who stand out, but it's a little bit more complex because, you know, from a perspective of different sets of human beings and marketeers and, and sales are a little bit like Venus and Mars. And we would recommend that more attention's paid to that sort of human aspect as well. You know, it's not just about having more meetings. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the GRIPS is a great acronym and it stands for Goals, Roles, Resources, Information and Conversation Flow, Processes and Success Measures. And mm-hmm. I just, when I read that, I just thought, how many are getting even past the G, <laughs> the goals? Well, no, uh, very surprising, you know. And I think, I think back to sort of some of my roles, and you know, the clar- clarity that I've had in situations where, um, you know, I, I've carried the same revenue target in a marketing role as the, as the, uh, my sales colleague, and therefore I've sort of lived or died by that. Whereas now. Um, as as you sort of have like more specialist functions for marketing, then you know people might get rewarded for uh, awareness raising things that maybe don't have much impact on on the bottom line sales growth. And like one uh, sales SVP said to me, I can't understand at this moment in time why my guys aren't hitting target and all the marketing scorecards are green. That's just not where you want to be. Yeah, yeah, that's just what I was thinking about. They said the marketing side of the scorecard was green. <laughs> sales side yeah. was red. You yeah, think maybe yeah. there's a <laughs> something yeah. That was a great yeah. quote from that from your yeah. research. So Simon, yeah. if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I, I would hope it would be that sort of customer value is the way to go, but that it's it's slightly effort, effortful, but it's worth it, you know. And the latest survey that we see from Forrester is is actually declaring, you know. 2017 is the year of customer centricity and for us customer centricity is all about customer value and 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 so the, the other thing is about it being 
a play between marketing and sales and it has to be a cohesive effort line aligned to the customer yeah mm-hmm. and then if you do this it'll give you an advantage because lots of people aren't doing it yeah that was one of my big takeaways. It is just so painfully obvious. I mean, it hurts. Some some of the statistics in here made it hurt. I was just amazed. And I think that your book is aligning several planets at the right time, sales and marketing and customer alignment. And there's, of course, I've had books on the show where they talk about sales, they talk about marketing. We've had books about sales and marketing alignment, and we've had lots of books about customer focus. And all of those things mm-hmm. are going in the right direction, but this ties them together in a way that I haven't seen yet, but there's still lots more books for, for me to read. So yeah, what books have inspired your work and career as a, as a pracademic? Well, I, th- I think I think before we get to books, I, I think it's important to sort of call out the guy who used to be the sort of lead feature writer for Marketing Week back in the day was a guy called Alan Mitchell, and uh, he was the one who got me onto you know. If anybody says to me, what's marketing about? You can only use one word. I always use the the word alignment because that's what Alan Mitchell said once to me. And I thought, yeah, that really resonates with me. It's the alignment between customer and and what your organization can do to sort of impact the customer. So then, um, you know, around the sort of turn of the millennia, like lots of people at Cranfield over in the UK, like Simon Knox was writing about customer value. And so... Some of the early approaches were, were built from him. I love the simplicity of, of Seth Godin's books. I'm sure lots of people call him out, like Purple Cow, I love, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Very unique approach. He's written a lot of books. And just like his blog, it's just amazing how much he's able to convey with so few words. <laughs> and I think the, the, that, that's that's an art in itself because, you know, if, if, back to music again, uh, all of the great bass players realize that what they do is keep the underlying beat for a song. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to get too technical and you, you might be able to play up technically a lot better than that, but it's sort of making the complex accessible. And that's why Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is, is something I'd always aspire to try and get to in terms of a gold standard for how you you write and make complex stuff accessible, yeah? So, and, and other people do that. I mean, I know you've had her on your show uh, and we've u- we use her books as source material for our book. Jill Conrath mm, is yes. really good at doing that. And and then in, in terms of sort of groundbreaking thinking at the time they wrote the stuff, um, I mean, you've got to love Gary Hamill, uh, Hamill's books, um, particularly that he wrote with Pralahad, you know, the whole competing for the future stuff which is sort of still relevant. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably ones I, w- I would want to call out. We'll make sure to put links to their, well, the, the books you've mentioned, as well as just some of those individuals on the, on the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be letting myself down if I also didn't give you an academic reference, because I think, again, one thing we've done in the book, here, and we do in our work, is we actually bring forward academic research as well, because quite often they've done more depth research than... Uh, some some of the commercial companies and the way that this book is influenced is by two guys called Vargo and Lush who sort of from an academic standpoint change the sort of nature of how marketing is considered away from like value in the transaction which is I sell you something and therefore the value must have been transferred to what they call value in use which is the point I was making earlier that you know the umbrella is only useful if it keeps you dry, and um, they brought that back to the fore, which in in, in marketing in academia, which I think is very useful. 
You've got a lot so. of footnotes uh, in the book, so I'm going to see if we can pull out one of their papers, perhaps, and, cool. and link to that for the listener. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing? Well, yeah, I mean... It made me feel a little bit guilty because I've, I've ordered a lot of books that are kicking around my house that because I've been sort of occupied with this valuology project and the research that surrounds that, I've not really got to. I'm looking at one here. You get back to your life now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've heard this one. It's called The Attention Merchants. It's by Tim Wu. And Oh, yes, I have heard about that. Yeah, it talks about uh, how advertisers and programmers come to seize control of your eyes and mind, which I, I think could be interesting. I can't sort of let the opportunity pass to talk about an ex-colleague of mine who's sort of really done well in the whole customer experience world, Colin Shaw. He's got a book coming up called The Intuitive Customer, which seems good. So there are a couple that I can think of. And of course, one that I did mention to you earlier before we started this whole discussion, Bev Burgess and Dave Munn, which is a practitioner's guide to account-based marketing. Yeah. Yes. It's a it's a timely book because account-based marketing is is discussed quite a bit. You've got a good bit of it in, in your book. We didn't have time to get into that and I really didn't want to take the focus off the value and the and the, the sales alignment. So yeah, I, I think that's interesting. I mean I, I'm I'm looking forward to that podcast and the book because I, to be candid with you, Douglas, I you know, until I read this book and I consume some other stuff, I, I feel a little bit that this AB, ABM is a little bit like new bottles for, for old wine. So I need to sort of be proved right or wrong or somewhere in between on that. Well, so that's yeah, why I'm and, I, and we talked about that. Is this another buzzword? Is it, you know, is it? <laughs> and he was very clear. And, th- and their book is very clear about who this works for, how to know if it makes sense for your company or not. So yeah, maybe there is a there is a little bit of that. Well, interestingly, though, in uh, that interview, he talked about how uh, one of the problems, quote air quote problems, is that when some companies start to do introduce account based marketing, that the rest of the company starts clamoring for it in too much of a hurry because <laughs> mm-hmm. they start yeah. they start seeing how how it works in terms of growing a particular account uh, existing customer so but it, it it was an interesting read i think uh, you know marketers need to be up to speed on that so yeah yeah for sure so simon how best can listeners learn more about you and your book well there are a few things i mean you you can actually j- just jump onto amazon and uh, buy it if if this discussion uh, prompts you to do that if you want to learn a little bit more or um, we have got value-ology.com. So if you go to value-ology.com, value-ology.com, you'll see more information about the book. There's a little video whiteboard as well that's vaguely entertaining that uh, gives you a little overview of it. And also, if you go there, we do have a downloadable ebook which sort of is about how to construct value propositions using our methodology, which given the amount of bands that we've mentioned on here may not surprise you. We call them musical value propositions. Yes, yes. And we didn't have time to get into that, but I think that that's terrific. What we're going to do is we're going to put as much of those links on marketingbookpodcast.com for the show notes for this interview to try and help get people to, to where they need to go. And if we can, we'll even include that video. So cool. the name of the book is Valueology, Aligning Sales and Marketing to Shape and Deliver Profitable Customer Value 
propositions. The authors are Simon Kelly, Paul Johnston, and Stacey Danheiser. Simon, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. Cheers, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 124 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett, or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you, and please join us next time as we welcome Noah Fleming back to the show to talk about his new book, The Customer Loyalty Loop, the science behind creating great experiences and lasting impressions. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.